From NPR News in Mexico City, this is Weekend Edition. I'm Adrian Peralta. Good morning. How a train derailment became political fodder for 2024, and after the Nicaraguan government stripped her of her citizenship, a poet comes to terms with exile. Oh, I miss the landscape. I miss the smell, the trees, the air. Also, is nuclear fusion really the answer to climate change? Plus, in a mega city full of clatter? We talked to the woman behind Mexico City's most iconic sound. It's Sunday, February 26. All that and a lot more after this newscast. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Schiavone. Israeli and Palestinian officials are holding a rare security meeting today with U.S. officials. They're trying to calm tensions after a period of intensified violence. NPR's Daniel Estrin has details from Tel Aviv. It's the first high-level security meeting of its kind in years, with top U.S., Jordanian, Egyptian, Israeli, and Palestinian officials meeting in Jordan's Red Sea town of Aqaba. Palestinian officials say the U.S. is presenting a plan to de-escalate tensions. They say under the plan, Israel would decrease its arrest raids on Palestinian cities, like the one last week that Palestinian officials said killed 11 people. And the Palestinian security forces with U.S. assistance would reassert control over areas where militant groups operate. Israeli officials say the focus is to lower tensions during Ramadan, which coincides with Passover in April. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. In Italy, authorities say the bodies of 43 migrants have been found near the southern coast after their wooden boats smashed into rocky reefs. Dozens were rescued. With health concerns mounting as a result of this month's train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, teams from several federal agencies are going door-to-door this weekend to conduct outreach support for residents. At the same time, the EPA is also changing how it's handling the removal of hazardous material from the site. NPR's Dave Mistich has more. EPA Region 5 Administrator Deborah Shore said the agency had ordered Norfolk Southern to pause shipments from the derailment, but vowed that removal of the material would resume soon. Moving forward, waste disposal plans, including disposal location and transportation routes for contaminated waste, will be subject to federal EPA review and approval. Portions of materials related to the derailment, including wastewater from firefighting efforts and contaminated soil, have already been relocated to a Houston, Texas suburb and also to an area outside of Detroit, Michigan. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine says more than 100,000 gallons of liquid waste and 4,500 cubic yards of solid material remain in storage in East Palestine. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Up and down the state of California this weekend, snow fell in varying degrees, including the San Francisco Bay Area. The storm arrived in the region Friday night with high winds and a dusting of snow. Temperatures dropped into the 20s and broke a 132-year-old record for low temperatures. Drivers not accustomed to driving on snow and ice have been cautioned. This is very rare for us in the Bay Area to receive such beautiful snow. But we have to be mindful and be safe when we're out there on the roadways. So just pay attention to the road, pay attention to the signs, and use caution. That's Victor Gautier of the California Department of Transportation. Almost 100,000 people in California lost power. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
The Cambridge-based organization Mass Landlords has filed a lawsuit against the city of Boston for public records on its rent control committee. According to court documents, the city has not complied with Mass Landlords' public records requests, first filed nearly a year ago. The trade organization was seeking emails between the city and the people appointed to Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee, but says it only received one correspondence. Mayor Wu hopes to restore some version of rent control policies which have been banned in the city since 1994. Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts held its inaugural Black Excellence Brunch yesterday. Black leaders spoke of the importance of mentorship for young people. Jasmine Rodriguez of Big Brothers Big Sisters says the organization has experienced a spike in demand for mentors since the pandemic began. She says the demand is particularly high for mentors who share a cultural background and gender identity with their so-called littles. Just having that extra person in your corner to continue to work with you, to hear you out, another person to help guide you, and another person that you can trust, um, I think just really is super important for young people, especially right now. Rodriguez says about 4,000 young people are part of the organization in eastern Massachusetts. MBTA riders need to budget some extra time today. Red line trains are replaced with shuttle buses between Alewife and Kendall MIT so crews can complete power, lighting, and track drain work. Crews also are carrying out rail replacement work to remove a slow zone near Harvard Station. Orange Line and Green Line trains are bypassing Haymarket Station to allow for demolition work on the government center garage. Instead of Haymarket, Orange Line riders should use North Station or State. Green Line riders should use North Station or Government Center. It is 24 degrees in Boston. Some snow possible today, little or no accumulation expected, though. Late in the day, a chance of rain. Highs today in the upper 30s. A slight chance of rain and snow tonight. Tomorrow, getting cloudier. Highs in the low 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by HBO Max. The HBO original drama series, Perry Mason, starring Matthew Reese, returns for a new season, Monday, March 6th at 9 p.m. on HBO Max. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe is off this weekend. I'm Ader Peralta. A train derailment and a controversial decision about a toxic payload is now part of the 2024 presidential campaign. To the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, we have told you loud and clear you are not forgotten. To help explain how politics gets heaped on top of questions about safety, the environment, and commerce, we turn to NPR White House correspondent Tamar Keith. Good morning, Tam. Good morning. So, as we know, the train had five cars carrying vinyl chloride, and rather than risk an explosion, authorities decided to release and burn it. That was three weeks ago. How did we get from that to, as we just heard, former President Trump making a splashy visit this past Wednesday? This incident has grown in political significance over time, in part because Republican politicians have seen an opportunity to criticize President Biden, accusing him of not caring about the people in this overwhelmingly white, rural, Republican community. And they've been pretty explicit about the demographics, too. This really hit a fever pitch when, on Monday, President Biden made a surprise trip to Kyiv, Ukraine, 
And hard right Republicans like Congressman Matt Gates said that he was ditching America for Ukraine. Donald Trump Jr. and others tweeted criticism that Biden was going to Ukraine before East Palestine. And then, of course, on Wednesday, the same day Biden was returning from Poland, former President Trump flew his plane, delivered Trump branded water and gave a speech. Uh, He bought McDonald's for first responders. And this has been described by many as a campaign style event. But in many ways, it was it really had the feel of the sort of cheerleading after a disaster that President Trump did in his role as consoler in chief when he was president. So is this insinuation that the federal government forgot the people of East Palestine? Is that fair? President Biden was asked on Friday whether he would go to East Palestine, and he said he had no plans to. He also pointed out that federal officials were there on the ground assisting with response within hours of the derailment. Yesterday, White House officials sent me a timeline of federal actions related to it, and that includes meetings, calls, teams on the ground to test the water and air, efforts to make the railroad company Norfolk Southern pay for all of it. It's this very long list, and that includes a call from President Biden to the governors of Ohio and Pennsylvania back in the very early days right after the accident. Here's how Governor DeWine of Ohio described the call in a press conference. He was wanted just to assure me that anything I needed from the federal government, uh, they would supply uh, and told me to call him personally uh, if there was anything that we needed at any point. According to the White House, this weekend, FEMA, the CDC and EPA are going door to door in East Palestine to check on each family personally. But Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who's become a real focus of the GOP ire, didn't visit the site until late last week. And in politics, sometimes perception can be more important than reality. So now Donald Trump is trying to draw a contrast here, and he's doing it on the assumption that President Biden runs for re-election. But Biden is still technically not a candidate, right? Correct, though Biden and everyone around him are sending signals about his intentions that are about as subtle as a flashing neon (laughs) billboard. And that includes First Lady Jill Biden, who in an interview with the Associated Press said that he was ready to run and had every intention of running, despite not yet making it official. And and there was this quote, how many times does he have to say it for you to believe it? (laughs) Which is a fair question. And the reality is, although Trump declared he was running for reelection as soon as he was sworn in and then declared again uh, this past fall, typically a president doesn't make it official until spring in the odd year. House Republicans are also very interested in East Palestine. Members of the Oversight Committee sent a letter to Transportation uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Uh, What did it say? Yeah, uh, asking for a lot of documents. And Buttigieg responded, saying that his agency would review the request and respond appropriately. Uh, But this is just the latest in a flurry of requests for documents from numerous federal agencies and the White House. House Republicans have the majority, and they are using that power to launch investigations into everything from the Afghanistan withdrawal to President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and his business dealings with China. And in fact, this week, the Select Committee on China has a hearing set for 7 p.m. It's on Tuesday. Evening hearings are rare, and the Select Committee on China is trying to draw attention to its work. And this committee has perhaps the greatest chance to do serious bipartisan work. Its focus is on probing China's role in the world and how the U.S. could counter its aggression and business practices. That's NPR's White House correspondent, Tamara Keith. Tam, thank you. You're welcome. 
Over the past few years, Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega has increasingly consolidated his grip on power. He has used violence to crack down on dissent. He's shut down newspapers and jailed dissidents. Now he's beginning to employ a new tactic. He has stripped more than 300 political opponents of their citizenship, a move the UN says violates international law. Yoconda Beli is one such Nicaraguan who has had her citizenship stripped. She's an acclaimed poet and political activist, and she joins us from exile in Madrid, Spain. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So Yoconda, on a practical level, um, your passport is now no longer valid. But I mean, this feels bigger than that. It feels like a like a symbolic gut punch. Um, how do you see it? Well, I caught my passport on television last week. My passport doesn't make me Nicaraguan. I mean, there are six million Nicaraguans in the country and half of them at least do not have a passport. I mean, my passport is uh, issued by a government I do not recognize, a government that has stayed in power through rigged elections, including the absurdity of the 2021 elections when every candidate who announced they were running was arrested. Uh, and they outlawed any political party that represented any real opposition. So it's really a, a, a government that has no legitimacy. So my passport has no legitimacy. And of course, they have no right to strip me of my nationality. You fought alongside Daniel Ortega to overthrow a dictator in the 70s. Um, Ortega has now been Nicaragua's leader for more than 25 years. Why do you think... Uh, that President Ortega is taking this action now? I mean, what's the motivation? Well, I think since 2018, when people revolted and it was very clear that people were tired of this intention of the, of the Ortega government to perpetuate himself and his family in, uh, in power. So people went out on the streets and in that protest that was not very big, they began killing people and they began hitting and beating uh, the few protesters that were there and people saw it on their phones. And then they began, the students hid in the, uni in the campus of the university and they set up uh, snipers that began shooting the students. And so it was this kind of enraged, the whole of Nicaragua and People came out on the streets and it, it became a huge revolt. And because of that, I think they became afraid of people. So since then, we have lived a reign of terror. That's the truth. Yoconda, you've written a lot about how much love and how much heartbreak Nicaragua has given you. Um, would you mind reading a few lines for us? I want to, you know, I, I thought of reading this poem... That was how I feel about being stripped of everything. It's called eh, despatriada in Spanish. It's banished, no? I have no place to live. I chose the word. My books were left behind. My home, the garden, its hummingbirds, the massive palms named Bismarck for their imposing presence. I have no place to live. I chose the word to speak for those who are silenced, to understand a rage that nothing can appease. Hmm. So, Yoconda, I, I grew up um, in a refugee family, and 
my parents always called Miami el exilio, the exile. Yeah. Um, and they always dreamed of going back home to Nicaragua. They always miss the little things, the gallo pinto or sitting down with neighbors to gossip and on those little uh, uh, wooden rocking chairs. What is it that you miss the most about your homeland? Oh, I miss the landscape. I miss the smell, the trees, the the air. You know, I have a very symbiotic relationship with Nicaragua and it's like my body and my soul come together when I am there, you know, like... I I remember when I lived in the States for a while, when I would fly back into Nicaragua and I could see the green below. It's like my soul and my body came back together, you know. So it's, it's a place I miss uh, my friends. I miss the sound of the voices of people, uh, the laughter, the, the easy sense of humor that people have. Yeah, and, you know, not much of the food, <laughs> I have to admit. Do you think um, there will ever be a day when you will be able to see that landscape again? Absolutely. Let's say I turn 90. I don't think <laughs> they are not let, going to let me go in. So I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, whether dead or alive, I will be on Nicaraguan soil and if I am dead, I will become a tree. I will become earth again, and it, it will be the Nicaraguan earth. Nicaraguan poet and political activist, Yoconda Belli. Thank you for speaking with us. Un placer. Thank you, un placer. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9.18 and coming up in about five minutes, some ideas to combat climate change are more realistic and readily available than others. You'll hear about some guidelines for making that distinction. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. It's 23 degrees in Boston, a chance of some snow today with little or no accumulation expected. Later in the day, a chance of rain. Highs today in the upper 30s. Tonight, a slight chance of some rain and snow and overnight lows in the low 20s. Then getting cloudier tomorrow and Monday's highs in the low 30s. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. The EPA has ordered a temporary halt in the shipment of contaminated materials from the site of a toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. This after other communities in several states expressed concerns about the safety of shipping them. In Italy, authorities say the bodies of 43 migrants have been found near the southern coast after their wooden boats smashed into rocky reefs. Dozens were rescued. Israeli and Palestinian officials are holding a rare security meeting today with U.S. officials. They're trying to calm tensions after a period of intensified violence. Also in focus, efforts to set the stage for uneventful Passover and Ramadan seasons in April. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ader Peralta. There's a new key player on the White House economic team, and she's a familiar face. Lael Brainerd, who has been vice chair at the Federal Reserve, started a new job this past week as director of the president's National Economic Council. She'll coordinate the different cabinet departments and other economic arms of the government. And she's taking over at an uncertain moment for the economy. The job market is still very strong, while economic growth has been slowing, and inflation remains stubbornly high. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now to talk about what Brainerd brings to the White House and what she leaves behind at the Fed. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ader. Good to be with you. So Brainerd already knows her way around the White House. Uh, tell us about her background. She is a Harvard-trained economist who served in both the Clinton and Obama administrations. Uh, she's worked in the Treasury Department. She knows both domestic and international economics. She's been on the Federal Reserve Board for almost a decade now. She was initially appointed there by former President Obama and then elevated to the vice chair's post by President Biden. Uh, she had also been considered for the Fed chairman's job and for the job of Treasury Secretary in the Biden administration. In a statement, uh, the president called Brainerd a trusted veteran who understands how the economy affects everyday people. Does her move uh, to the White House signal some kind of shakeup in policy? No, I don't think so. I think we're going to see a lot of continuity with her predecessor, Brian Deese, who's held the job for the last couple of years. You know, this is the point in an administration when you usually see some turnover. People uh, are worn out after a couple of years in the fishbowl, and it's also a chance for them to go out and make some money in the private sector. So I don't think this is a signal of abrupt change. Obviously, we have a divided Congress now, so there's not going to be a lot of opportunity for ambitious economic legislation. Uh, instead, Brainerd's job is mostly going to be implementing the bills that were already passed and then putting out whatever economic fires pop up. A potential economic fire on the horizon, of course, is the battle over the debt ceiling. Congress needs to raise the government's borrowing limit or risk a potentially disastrous default sometime this summer or early fall. The National Economic Council director is usually a fairly low-profile job, but by virtue of her background, Brainerd might be in front of the cameras a little bit more often, serving as an economic spokesperson for the White House. Hmm. So when he makes this move, the president um, has filled one vacancy and created another. What does Brainerd's departure mean for the Fed? She has been uh, an important and influential player uh, at the central bank as it wrestled first with the economic collapse caused by the pandemic and then more recently with stubbornly high inflation. Uh, there has not been a lot of disagreement among Fed officials about the urgent need to get a handle on inflation. Uh, the Fed's moved aggressively to raise interest rates and, and Brainerd's been part of that consensus. However, she has also been a strong voice for workers, and she shined a spotlight on corporate profits. Uh, speaking at the University of Chicago last month, uh, she noted that workers' share of the economy has gone down in the last couple of years, while corporate profits have held steady at near record highs. 
Uh, she suggested those corporate profits uh, could come down uh, in a way that eases inflation without having to suffer a big jump in unemployment. And that's an important perspective that sort of sets her apart from some of the other policymakers on the Fed's governing board. Do we know who's going to replace her? We don't know. Uh, a couple of names have been floated, a couple of academic economists, Janice Everly uh, and Karen Dynan. Everly is at Northwestern University, uh, Dynan's at Harvard. Uh, they have both uh, worked uh, in the Treasury Department in the past, and they both reportedly have strong backing from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who, of course, used to be leader of the central bank. And Pierre Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. There are lots of ideas floating around for how to reduce the emissions which contribute to climate change. They range from ambitious technology solutions like nuclear fusion to low-tech ones like planting millions of trees. We wanted to get a sense of how legitimate these ideas are, so we turned to Julia Simon, NPR's climate solutions reporter. Julia, so nice to have you on the program. Thanks, Ader. All right, so in a nutshell, uh, what's the best way to address climate change? Scientists will tell you the big climate solution is to burn less fossil fuels and transition to more renewable energy and storage, become more efficient. Okay, so totally logical. But then you hear about these exotic climate solutions, like the recent news about nuclear fusion. Is that a climate solution? Ah, oh, nuclear fusion. Here's what Harvard historian of science Naomi Oreskes has to say about that. Oh my God. I mean, just let me blow up there for a second to use the fusion metaphor. I mean, people have been claiming that nuclear fusion was just around the corner since 1943. Oreskes says whenever you hear about a new promising climate technology, ask yourself, is this technology actually available now? Is it affordable or scalable now? Whenever you hear the word breakthrough, some red flags should start flying. Hmm. Killjoys. Uh, <laughs> but what about when you buy an airplane ticket these days? Um, some airlines offer to take even more of your money to offset the carbon emissions from your flight. Is that money well spent? Often it isn't. So an offset can be something like giving money to plant trees that will, in theory, soak up the carbon dioxide equivalent to your flight. But experts will tell you there are often issues verifying those offsets. What if those trees burn in a wildfire? If offsets don't work, that's adding more emissions. So adding emissions, that's going backwards. It's not working. And you can see this with carbon capture, too. That's this new technology to vacuum carbon dioxide out of the air. Right now, if the process uses fossil fuels, it can add more emissions. A climate solution, by definition, should not add more emissions to our atmosphere. So when we hear about these ideas, um, is there a yardstick that we can apply to figure out if it's legitimate or, or even promising? Yeah, here's a tip from Melissa Aronchik. She's a media professor at Rutgers University. When I hear the word solutions, immediately I think, who is coming up with a solution and what do they say the problem is? If a company, for example, claims they're all about climate solutions but continues to invest in fossil fuels, Aronchik says pay attention. That business may be trying to signal we got this and delay more meaningful action to cut climate pollution. And what's the government's role in all of this? We often think of businesses working on solutions on their own, but government often plays a big role in funding and research support for new climate tech. 
And scientists say governments will have to play a big role in regulating emissions. So this all relates to this solution I keep hearing about. Here's June Sakara, visiting scholar at the New School in New York. You know, it goes back to voting, who you vote into office. That's that's the bottom line. We can see this in Brazil later. Brazilians just voted in a new president, President Lula da Silva. He's pledged to address deforestation, a huge chunk of Brazil's emissions. So a big climate solution at your fingertips is to vote. Hmm. NPR's climate solutions reporter, Julia Simon. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Ader. The Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein received his sentence in Los Angeles last week. Same for the R&B singer R. Kelly in Chicago. So has justice been served this afternoon and all things considered? What justice looks like to the survivors of domestic and sexual violence? For the prosecutors who worked hard to win their cases, it may be satisfying to see convicted abusers assigned a term in prison. But that isn't always how those who endure abuse see it. Find out more by listening to All Things Considered this afternoon on your member station's website or at npr.org. Mexico City is chaos. 22 million people live here, and everywhere you turn, someone is trying to get your attention. The bread guy, the trash collector, the guy who sells water, or the one who sells tamales from Oaxaca. But there is no sound more iconic, more recognizable than this. Trucks drive around every corner of the city, bidding to buy your old stuff, mattresses, refrigerators, or any old piece of iron that they can recycle. It's like the street equivalent of a nagging infomercial. The sound is so ubiquitous that the first words of Spanish that popped out of my three-year-old's mouth were... I tracked down Maria del Mar Martinez at her house in the outskirts of Mexico City. On the walls of the living room, she has a piece of art that honors her trajectory. When she was eight years old, she worked as a clown at kids' parties. And then, 19 years ago, when she was just nine years old, she and her dad recorded Se Compra. On this wall, I want to put the cassette, because when we first recorded, it was on a cassette. At the time, her dad was pushing a cart around Mexico City, and he would call out for potential customers using a cardboard megaphone. Marco Antonio Aguilar is a sentimental guy. The memories fill his eyes with tears. Those were hard days, he says. He remembers having to work right after surgery. He remembers how the weight of the cart stretched his stitches. His daughter puts her hand on his shoulder. Marco Antonio is a single dad, and they've always been together. 
ever since they can remember, she's been walking alongside him, buying old stuff in Mexico City. I bought her goggles and gloves, and when she got tired, she would just ride on the cart. To make work a little easier, one night they stayed up late until all the other sounds in the city went quiet, and they recorded Se Compra. When they took it out to the streets, their business took off, and everyone asked, where did you get this? They would ask. How much would you sell it for? I just say, just give me five pesos for the cassette. Like a hot mixtape in Houston, the cassette made its way across the city, and within a year, it was everywhere. The recording was being used by dozens, who knows, maybe hundreds of upcyclers across Mexico City. Maria del Mar says what gave her pleasure is that it became the soundtrack of a kind of work that she calls magical. Some old lady sells you an old TV, a young woman, a beat-up washer. And then you have to remove this part or strip that cable, and you think, whoa, I am feeding my family like this. Sometimes they would leave with 30 bucks, a teeny bit of gas, and come back home with 1,700. Marco Antonio says he remembers one day when they hardly had any food at home. He had spent all day roaming the streets and had bought nothing. In nearly every neighborhood in Mexico City, there are these little shrines to the Virgin of Guadalupe. Marco Antonio says he stopped his truck and prayed at one of them. I restart the truck and people start coming out. Something magical. And people began taking out their old things. Like a miracle. In the 19 years since, the recording has appeared in movies, on TV. Musicians have taken inspiration. Maria del Mar and her dad have recorded ads for other companies. They've made enough money to buy themselves a newer, more efficient vehicle to keep doing what they love. And as always, father and daughter hop on. And they do what they've always done. But now she screams her iconic pitch live because that's what people want. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. If you've ever seen a cut-down tree, you've noticed the rings that mark each year of growth. But those rings don't just show the tree's age, they show how fast the tree grew. A new study took this idea and applied it to dinosaur bones to learn just how some dinos got so big. Michael Demick is a paleontologist at Adelphi University. He joins us now. Welcome, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So your research uh, focused on a particular group of dinosaurs, right? How did you analyze their bones? So we looked at a group called theropod dinosaurs that includes some of the most famous examples like T-Rex and Velociraptor, Archaeopteryx, and importantly, 
that is the group that includes birds living today. So we had to take samples or slices from each of the leg bones and affix them to a glass slide, a large microscope slide, and sand that down to about the thickness of a human hair, so thin that light could shine through. And then we could uh, count and measure the growth rings. So you studied theropods, these big dinosaurs, and, and what did the study find about the way that they grow? Our study found that there's no one way to grow a dinosaur, that the largest dinosaurs sometimes took as little as 10 years or so to get to their truly immense sizes, and some others would have taken decades. So there were vastly different growth rates and durations in the largest dinosaurs. And we actually found that that was true for even medium and small-sized theropod dinosaurs as well. And does that challenge conventional wisdom, what we thought about how dinosaurs evolved to get so big? It does. It was thought that in the group Dinosauria, which includes the group that we studied, it was thought that the predominant mechanism for evolving a larger body size was through developmental acceleration, so having a faster growth spurt. And what our paper shows is that it's just as equally likely that they actually slowed their growth, but grew for longer. Are there evolutionary advantages to like these two types of growths? Yeah, there's advantages and disadvantages. There's trade-offs. Um, so evolving to grow faster than your ancestors means that you can possibly outcompete other species in your environment for resources. Um, so maybe you can reach taller trees or get to environments that smaller species can't get to. Um, and you can also then outpace the growth of predators in your environment. So you're, you're not small for as long, and so maybe you're not potential dinner for as long in your life. The disadvantage is that it takes a lot of energy. And so if lean times come, like a, a drought, there's not that much food around, then you would be more prone to extinction. Hmm. Can we talk about living animals? Do we see that kind of variety in how fast or slow large species grow um, in animals that are living now? Absolutely, yeah. We see a whole range of um, growth rates and patterns in animals today. The tricky thing is that the sample of animals that we have today, those are just the animals that happen to be with us, right? I call them animals that happen to not be extinct. So it's not a, a true evolutionary sample. Um, to get a sense of how evolution proceeds, you need to sample fossils in the past. There's a famous quote, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. We can get led astray by just looking at animals today. That's Michael Demick, a paleontologist at Adelphi University. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The city of Boston is facing a lawsuit from the Cambridge-based organization Mass Landlords. It is seeking public records regarding the Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee established by Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. According to court documents, the city has not complied with the trade organization's public records requests first filed nearly a year ago. Mass Landlords called for emails between the city and the people appointed to the committee, but says it only received one correspondence. 
Tomorrow, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey will officially appoint more than 30 black leaders from across the state to a newly created Advisory Council on Black Empowerment. The council will advise the governor on issues including education, health care, housing, and workforce development. Today, the city of Boston is wrapping up Black History Month with an all-black everything celebration. The event takes place this afternoon in Roxbury at the National Center of Afro-American Artists. It will feature a DJ, poetry readings, visual arts, and refreshments. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu MBA. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we put the important question to Stephen Colbert. Is it weird to have all that awkward sex on camera with Adam Driver. <laughs> it's not weird. <laughs> and Peter Sagal join us for an all-star Wait Wait this week with Steven, Michaela Schifrin, Rob Reiner, basically everybody but Adam Driver. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Today at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges, to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores, or staplesconnect.com. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, at wtgrantfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ader Peralta. It's been almost three weeks since the earthquakes in southern Turkey and Syria. And for survivors, many necessities are still lacking, like shelter. NPR's Peter Kenyon visited tent cities in the coastal province of Hatay, where he found people with near-term worries about things like hygiene and wondering when they'll once again have a home to go to. The earthquake has forced people to form new temporary neighborhoods of sorts, tent cities filled with people still taking stock of what they've lost and wondering where events will take them next. Amid the tents in the town of Arsuz, people begin lining up for a lunch of doner kebab, a classic Turkish meat dish cooked on a large rotating spit. 60-year-old Fatma Guner sits nearby at the edge of a large tent where she and dozens of others sleep. She says her house survived the earthquake, but she wouldn't feel safe staying there now. She's desperate to get away from here. I'm sick. I have heart disease, and I could get an infection very easily. My immune system is very low. They gave me some pills. I honestly can't stay here. It's really crowded. Other relatives are living in the only tent allocated to the family, leaving her no choice but to live here. She's not sure who to ask about getting her own tent. All I want is one tent in my garden, Put my tent in my garden. Here, there is no hygiene. Lack of tents is just one of the complaints against the government's response to the earthquake. The ruling AK party has promised 270,000 new homes within a year, a pledge greeted with skepticism by the opposition and other critics. But for families in Hatay province left homeless by the quake, proper shelter remains an overriding concern. 
At a very large tent city in Antakya in central Hatay, Ali Belir sits between tents while his young son and daughter fuss over their four pet birds sitting in two small cages. He's a former intercity bus driver, and he says his family home just up the hill ended up on its side in the earthquake. So the building was sideways. I wasn't there. The three kids and their mother got out. My 12-year-old daughter is in the hospital. She had a leg injury. Bilir says this tent city is the most secure place because there are no large buildings near enough to crush them in the event of another quake. He says he's not sure where they might live next. According to rumors we've heard, they're going to offer us either some money or a container. We want a container. We're going to live there for a while, and then if they build it, maybe I can have a home. Turkey says the first of five ships loaded with, quote, living containers and humanitarian aid should reach the area by the first week of March. In another section of the tent city, Isan Savinch sits beside two of his six children. Six-year-old Elif is busy with crayons and a coloring book. Savinch grows emotional as he recalls carrying his 90-year-old mother out of the house, not stopping to put on his socks and shoes. Barefoot, without any socks, I put my 90-year-old mom on my back, and my wife took these two kids, and that's how we barely made it out, stepping on broken glass and pieces of rubble. When asked what he needs most at the moment, he quickly says a tent. He and his family have been sleeping at a friend's house some 25 miles from here, returning each day for food and in hopes of getting their own tent. Like a number of people here, Savinch says this disaster won't drive him away from Hatay. I will never leave this place. If I die, I will die here. It's my hometown where I had all my childhood memories, my youth, all my life. I will never leave here. But like others sleeping in tents across southern Turkey and northern Syria, he knows that where he ends up may not be within his control. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Hatay, Turkey. He was one of the Boston Marathon's most famous and loyal spectators. Spencer, a golden retriever and the marathon's official dog. He died on the 17th of cancer. He was 13. For years, he was a beloved fixture at the race. Come rain or shine, he could be found around the three-mile mark, holding a Boston strong flag between his teeth as thousands of runners sped by. He became such a celebrity that many competitors would stop to give him a quick pat or take a selfie before rejoining the marathon. Spencer had shot to fame in 2018 after a video of him decked out in a rain jacket went viral on social media. The dog's owner, Rich Powers, told the New York Times that Spencer loved frisbees and swimming as well as eating dehydrated sweet potatoes and carrots. In a tweet, the Boston Marathon paid tribute to the pooch, saying his spirit and determination were inspiration to all. And they added that Spencer will now forever be considered the Boston Marathon's official dog. There's a pretty dramatic entrance in the new Marvel movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp. No big action, just music and the sound of footsteps, powerful footsteps. Marching into view is an actor the camera and fans can't get enough of. Here's Aisha Roscoe with an introduction. That actor is Jonathan Majors, and boy, has he arrived. 
he hit the big screen in a small film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, just a few years ago. Then came roles in HBO's Lovecraft Country and Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. And now at 33, Jonathan Majors, that face, that talent, those muscles is everywhere. He's in Ebony in an epic photo shoot wearing flamingo pink. And yeah, there's that Marvel movie. There's also a drama fresh out of the Sundance Film Festival called Magazine Dreams. Critics are already talking up Major's performance for an Oscar next year. And hitting theaters this week, Jonathan Majors goes head-to-head with Michael B. Jordan as a boxer fighting for his shot in Creed Three. Apollo Creed could take a chance on some underdog. Why can't you? And despite all his cred, when we sat down to talk, Jonathan Major said he's still very much an underdog, a kid from Texas who never set out to be a star. I just want to be an actor, you know. I had a moment when I was um, younger, you know, and I saw Broadway for the first time, and no, I was 21, I guess. I saw Mary Stewart. I got so sad when I walked out because I had spent all my money, and um, I felt I had missed out on so much. You know what I mean? You like know. what? Like what did you feel Well, like that experience that I had, the catharsis I had, you know, mm-hmm. being in space, looking at those wonderful actresses, you know, to that wonderful story, I was blown away by it. And I thought, damn, you know, that could have happened five years ago. Mm-hmm. Acting is the only thing that's never um, abandoned me. You know what I mean? It's kept me safe. Like what was like the moment like when acting really came into your life? Oh, man, I got in trouble. I stayed in trouble. <laughs> and um, I was coming out of it. I just kept putting the theater class, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, the spoken word has always been a big part of my life, whether it be the Bible. My mom's a pastor. Uh, we're Southern. Um, and as, as anyone from the South knows, you know, oration is a big part of our uh, culture. I listen to my granddaddy tell stories on his couch and singing, you know, is a big thing, the church. And also living in, you know, the neighbors I lived in, you know, apartment complexes, you know, popping off everything, this and that, this and that, this and that. Hearing people's, you know, alacrity with language was something I was like, man, that's wild, you know. And then realizing, oh, I got so, I just got that from living. Like this is my, this is my culture. This is this is how we operate. You know what I mean? Um, and one thing led to to another, you know. And then that then led to you know me googling one night, uh, what is the best drama school for grownups? And, uh, you know, the usual suspects came up. Yale was one of them. And I uh, applied my trade to get into that school. And that's been the hustle. You know, that's been the life, not even the hustle. So let's talk about how you pick your roles. Like, how do you decide this script speaks to me? This yeah. is what I want to do. Okay. And then do you look at it and go, like, I got some bills I need to pay, so let me do this one. No. Nah. And then you don't look at it like that? No, you I'm, never did? No, it's deep. Really? It's deep. Yeah, Even like, with your kid, you want I've like, been broke. I got, I look, you ain't got to talk to me about being broke. You talk about pressure. That's how I pick a role. That's how you pick. Based on pressure. I look at it and I go, oh, that's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hit a red zone in that, you mm-hmm. know, magazine dreams. Yeah. You know, can I be a bodybuilder? You look at those images. I remember looking at that, you know, reading the script and then Googling, and I went, this is going to be impossible. This is going to be, <laughs> this is impossible. You know what I mean? And I was like, hell yeah, let's roll. Same with Creed. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch the Rocky film, you go, man, that's so inspiring. Yeah. But then it can be intimidating if you think, oh, you're supposed to do that now. You go, oh, wow. The complexity of a, of a Damien Anderson, the pressure of, you know, folks who have been incarcerated yeah. watching that film. And Damien Anderson is who you play in Creed 3. Creed 3 yeah. And he is someone who has been incarcerated and yeah. wants a shot, yeah. right? 
tell me more about what drew you to Damien. Damien Anderson is, is based off a cup of folk. Uh, but for me, the inspiration was really my stepfather, right? Named Joe Young. Mm-hmm. We used to call him Mighty Joe Young. Used to. I call him Mighty Joe Young. That man, he was incarcerated 15 years before he got to me, you know, and became my stepfather. I understand what that ankle monitor life is like. I understand what the P.O. coming to the crib is like. I watched him be misunderstood and uh, judged, you know, and his aspirations. Mm-hmm. His deep, deep aspirations were something greater that were put on pause because he was incarcerated. Did you feel like you misjudged him? No, I didn't. You I did. always loved him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, I, but it's even more hurtful when you watch someone else do it. Yeah. Say, oh, you don't know him. Uh-huh. With Damon Anderson, you get the opportunity to show that, mm-hmm. right? I get the opportunity to, you know, write a love letter to my stepdad. He's going to be seen in that. He's going to be felt in that. I mean, in these some of these new roles that you did, there's somewhat the villain, right? Oh, or yeah. Or the antihero. Oh, yeah. What is attracting you to that sort of character at this point? I think it's the exploration of the shadow. Mm. There's the hero part of you that's, yes. you know, ooh, yeah, great. But we all have another side of ourselves, and that's yeah. the shadow part. It's the part that has our deepest ambitions, our deepest drives, our deepest wants. You know, lust is there, greed is there, hate is there. And so to play characters, right, that are already given such pejorative um, labels, but then to also show the light to that, it adds complexity to our human experience. You know, you have the the villain part of this, but then another common denominator, which you, you've mentioned, is the physicality, right? Oh, yeah. Like, so in Creed... You play a boxer mm. in Magazine Dreams. You play a amateur bodybuilder. Yeah. There is a very specific yeah. idea of saying, okay, I'm going to lean into looking like a bodybuilder. Listen, I just don't want to get bored with it. Mm. And to transform the body like that, it is a physical, spiritual, and emotional transformation fully. You know, it's a high mountain to climb. Because there's a standard of perfection. A bodybuilder looks like that. A boxer moves like that, fights like that, looks like that. That takes work. And there are, you know, two o'clock workout sessions where you're just crying on the floor because your abs just feel like they just stopped working, you know. <laughs> I remember when we were doing Creed, there were days I just couldn't feel my arms. Oh my there were days where, like, I actually can't feel anything. I'm just throwing. But then how does that feel internally? What oh, makes you not because now go- it's over. Now it's over. And you're like, yeah. And y'all, and y'all, so then you here. feel good about it. But like in a moment, why aren't you like, I got to stop. I Dame, can't feel Dame, my arms, Dame, guys. Dame won't quit. You okay, he, won't, he wouldn't quit. I'm thinking about Joe. Think about my stepdad. Mm-hmm. If you had the opportunity, right, mm-hmm. would you quit? You're there. Would you quit? No, you don't quit. You probably are not aware of this, um, but a few days ago you were trending on Twitter um, because some people didn't like that you were wearing pink and ebony and they felt like it wasn't masculine enough. What do you say to those? I mean, I think they're haters. I think it's toxic. Well, yeah, I imagine it's the homies, right? It's all about the the emasculation of of black men. I'd just be curious. What they have to say. Tell me what masculinity is. It is fluid. You know, you you tell me what it is. You know, I mean... Like, what is your definition of masculinity? It's balanced, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's strength, right? And there's vulnerability. There's um, awareness. And then there's um, acknowledgement of ignorance. Doesn't matter, you know, how much you weigh or how much you bench press. That's not the point. I hear my brothers. We've been... We fight and claw for every inch of positive news we get don't shy away from you know this idea of black masculinity i'm just living my life i am male 
I am black. <laughs> well, I mean, as a black actor, you are a black actor. Black. I'm a black journalist. Sometimes true. you feel like a pressure, like, or I have to speak for myself. Sometimes mm -hmm. you'll feel like a pressure, like, not only do I have to make the right decisions, but I don't want to let, you know, my grandma down yeah. or my, my mama down yeah. or have people look at me like, yeah. why did that young black woman do what she did? Mm -hmm, <laughs> you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. why you do that? Mm -hmm. Like a different level of pressure. There is there is the responsibility. As far as the folk and homies and family go, you know, my mama and them, like, as long as Terry, is my, which is my mother's name, as long as Terry's happy, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? As long as my little girl Ella's like, go ahead, daddy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you can't make art and worry about what folks think. You know what I mean? And yet there's a delicate balance, it's a tightrope because you're making it for them. You know what I yeah, mean? And for so, them to be entertained so you and to learn to be moved, and to feel and, be moved, and to feel something. And yes. when, the, when the young homie's looking at me like, oh man, I want to be like Jonathan Majors, you go, cool, man. Because you ain't trying to be like me because I'm trying to be like somebody else. I'm trying to be like Sidney Poitier. I'm trying to be like Denzel Washington. I'm trying to be like Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know? But my objective is, you know, I really believe just do the best you can, you know? It seems so simple. You know, I think when someone told me that when I was 17 years old, I was like, get the hell out of my face. You know what I mean? But when it comes down to it, that's really what it's about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Jonathan Majors, I appreciate you so much for talking with us. Oh, wow. And it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Wicked. This has been great. <laughs> I don't want to leave. This is fabulous. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you for your well, time. I appreciate that. Creed 3 is out this week, and you can watch my extended interview with Jonathan Majors, and he might be somebody that you want to see. Go to youtube.com forward slash NPR podcast. Thank you all for being with us. Aisha will be back at the mic next week. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ader Peralta. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, featuring wines from around the world with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet. Available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org slash radio. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Join us at City Space Thursday, March 9th, for a conversation with Julian Shapiro-Barnum. He's the host of the web series Recess Therapy, featuring funny interviews with kids. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 24 degrees in Boston, a chance of some snow today, but no accumulation expected. Later in the day, a chance of rain. Highs in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. GardnerMuseum.org. Republicans now control the House, and they're promising investigations into President Biden and his family. Democratic political operatives are getting ready to counter. A group like ours 
can say and do things that the White House won't, can't, shouldn't say or do. The Politics of Congressional Probes, Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Mexico City, this is Weekend Edition. I'm Ader Peralta. Good morning. In Mexico, a young democracy is being tested by a big fight over who controls elections. And we catch up with a journalist who did the unthinkable in Russia. And they could have betrayed her. She had an electronic bracelet, so there were so many reasons that she would fail. And on a school trip to Europe. And of course, the girls in the back, they just shout out, did you just kiss her on the ear? (laughs) An awkward kid drinks Fanta, finds love, and learns that the world is so much bigger than his small California town. It's Sunday, February 26th, and the news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A rare winter storm that drops significant snow and rain across California is racing across the central U.S. NPR's Amy Held reports on potentially dangerous weather ahead. People in the Los Angeles area accustomed to sunshine and drought got a sense of wonder from the rare snowfall that also turned to flooding rainfall and brought blizzard conditions to higher elevations. Now that same system is moving into the Plains states, bringing a strong line of severe thunderstorms. The setup there is for the potential of damaging wind gusts, as well as a few tornadoes, certainly across portions of western Oklahoma today. Zach Taylor with the National Weather Service says the major snow is also not done. There is the threat of some significant snowfall across the upper Midwest and the northern Great Lakes. The storm will keep moving eastward, reaching the coast by Tuesday. Northern New York and New England could get several inches of snow. Amy Held, NPR News. Belarus leader Viktor Lukashenko is headed to Beijing this week on a three-day visit where he'll meet with China's leader Xi Jinping. NPR's Emily Fang reports the visit comes as China tries to push for an end to the war in Ukraine, but also draws close to Russia and its allies. On Tuesday, Viktor Lukashenko, one of the closest allies of Russia's Vladimir Putin, will head to Beijing. China upgraded its relationship with Belarus last fall. And earlier this weekend, China's foreign minister, Qing Gong, had a phone call with Belarus's foreign minister, Sergei Elenik. Qing told his Belarusian counterpart, China will, quote, oppose external interference in Belarus's internal affairs and illegal unilateral sanctions against the country. Lukashenko's visit comes the week after China released a position paper repeating a call for a ceasefire in Russia's war in Ukraine, and China's diplomat went to Moscow. China's leader Xi Jinping is reportedly planning a visit to Moscow soon. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. 
Conservative Party members of Britain's parliament have been told to attend Monday's legislative session. Villa Marx reports this is the latest sign that new post-Brexit arrangements between the UK and European Union over Northern Ireland may be close to completion. Talks between officials in London and Brussels have continued intensively in recent weeks, aiming to revise a key element of Britain's exit deal from the European Union known as the Northern Irish Protocol. It's governed trading arrangements over the past two years, prompting political opposition among certain leaders in Northern Ireland as well as some lawmakers in Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's Conservative Party. Villa Marks reporting off the coast of Calabria, the Italian Coast Guard and firefighters today responded to a migrant shipwreck. They recovered more than 40 bodies. At the same time, the Italian Coast Guard says at least 80 people survived. UN agencies say most of the migrants were from Afghanistan, Pakistan or Somalia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Some residents in Massachusetts with marijuana-related convictions are looking to have their records expunged under a law signed last year. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more from a clinic in Somerville, part of a wider effort in the cannabis industry to help people negatively affected by the war on drugs. Greater Boston Legal Services Attorney Ventura Dennis knows the stakes. Having any interaction with the criminal justice system may mean that you cannot find housing or um, a means to provide for yourself. Dennis was helping people learn about their expungement options. For Dwan Packnett of Air Wellness, the marijuana company that ran the Saturday event, the clinics are personal. As a black woman, I understand the discrepancies and how easy it is to get arrested. It could be you did something and you made a mistake, but you aren't getting the benefit of the doubt. And I think that that has to change. Air Wellness said last year, 200 people had their records expunged through their clinics around the country, including three dozen in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. A 48-year-old man accused of acting aggressively at MGM's casino in Springfield died yesterday when police shot him after a pursuit on foot. Prosecutors say officers responded to the casino following reports of the man acting aggressively and possibly carrying a gun. An investigation is underway. The Boston Bruins notched a new achievement last night in Vancouver in their 3-1 victory over the Canucks. With 48 seconds left in the game, B's goalie, Linus Olmark, scored into an empty net. This marks the first goalie goal for the Bruins in team history. He's only the 13th goalie ever to score a goal in the NHL in the regular season. Elsewhere in sports and preseason baseball this afternoon, the Red Sox play the Rays. It is 25 degrees in Boston, a chance of some snow showers, and then late in the day, a slight chance of some rain showers. Highs in the upper 30s, lows overnight in the low 20s, increasing clouds tomorrow with Monday's temperatures in the low 30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, Amater Peralta in Mexico City. Thank you for being with us. Mexico is at a crossroads. I'm on Paseo de la Reforma, the huge boulevard at the heart of Mexico City. And over the past few months, this street has been flooded with dueling protests. Another big rally is expected today. And it's all about one thing, 
who will control the country's elections. And this week, Mexico's Senate passed a law that gutted the country's electoral commission. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador says the law reigns in a bloated and corrupt government agency, but critics say it is a stunning blow to Mexico's young democracy. But on the streets, we hear apathy. Bueno, creo yo, desde mi punto de vista, que la mayoría de las cosas que dicen es nada más para mantener este, satisfecho al pueblo. Domingo Granados is 20, a college student, and says he doesn't believe either side because with or without a clean electoral commission, elections are still dirty. Pues la verdad, este, ofrecen cosas, ¿no? O sea, por tu voto te, te ofrecen dinero. Truth is, political parties offer you money for your vote. There is wide agreement that the INE, the National Electoral Institute, helped pull Mexico out of one-party rule in the year 2000. Indeed, they have run elections that international observers have lauded. But on the streets, we hear what polls have found, vast support for defunding the institute. We hear that the commission hasn't made a difference, that the top commissioners are rolling in money, while Mexicans struggle to make ends meet. Juventino Gonzalez, who is 52, says what worries him is that this new law fires career civil servants. ¿A quiénes van a traer cuando sean las elecciones? Van a agarrar gente improvisada para organizar la elección. That means they're going to bring random workers to run elections and they will be partisan. Mexico's two decades of democracy have been imperfect, he says. Y esa democracia tan particular que hemos tenido sí está en peligro. And now even that peculiar democracy is in peril. The goal is not to save money. The goal should be to have clean elections and to build trust and to have uh, elections being accepted by all parties. Luis Carlos Ugalde knows what it takes to run elections. He's the former president of Mexico's Federal Electoral Institute, the organization that, among other things, sets up and monitors polling stations around Mexico. Ugalde told me that with these new reforms, INES offices would be downsized to potentially save money. But he said that would be a disaster for running elections smoothly. Mr. López Obrador, our president in Mexico, is a populist like Mr. Trump in the U.S., like Mr. Bolsonaro in Brazil. These three guys have something in common, which is that when they lose elections, they call fraud. And if you have a weakened institution, then that call may be stronger. If you have a strong INE, if you have capacity to organize elections, then these allegations lose weight. So I, this is going to be challenged in at the Supreme Court. Um, but are you worried at this point about Mexico's democracy? Yes, I am worried that Mexico's democracy is in danger, not immediate danger, but you have seen other episodes in other countries in which populist administrations have, have come into power, and many of them have become authoritarian regimes. INE is not Mexico's democracy. INE is part of Mexico's democracy, but uh, it is a very relevant element of that. If you allow that to happen, then the Mexican Congress is already very weakened because there is a hegemonic force in charge of the Mexican Congress, the Morena Party. The Mexican Supreme Court is being pressured by the Mexican president. So the system of checks and balances is in danger at this moment, and INE is part of that. So President Andrés Manuel López Obrador is very popular in Mexico. Um, there's a case to be made that 
Um, he doesn't need to change the electoral system for his party to win next year's presidential election. Why do you think he is making these changes right now? Why is he pushing these changes now? So why should he do that at this moment? I think there are many elements. One is simply because of political resentment. He lost the presidency in 2006. I was president of the of the of the electoral commission at the time, and I, in, instead of uh, abiding by the results, he claimed a fraud that he never proved anything about that supposed fraud in that year. Then in 2012, again he lost, and then he claimed fraud again. Second, it is about the narrative. Populist politicians need to build an idea that they are fighting the bad guys, the elites, the experts, the institutions of the past. So for López Obrador, INE is that type of institution, liberal institution, and he wants to fight that even if he is president of the republic. Then uh, I think that genuinely López Obrador thinks that INE is very expensive. For a populist like López Obrador, institutions can be cheap and the money of the government has to be used to make transfers to the poor people. So for him, this is very expensive. And finally, I think it is the political idea that if he claims and he talks about INE being part of the problem, then in 2024, Morena loses the presidency, unlikely today, but at some point the election can become competitive. Then he has the argument to say, I said to you, Ine made a fraud on us and then make that argument. So, I mean, but it does sound like what you're saying is that these agencies are vulnerable to whatever politicians want. Yes, absolutely. There is a point of no return. We are not there yet. But yes, of course, an institution in any democratic system, even in the U.S., and if you had... Trump back in 2024, and he continued to fight the electoral system and questioning the electoral mechanisms and questioning the parties and attacking the adversaries. And doing the U.S. can become an autocracy by the end of the decade. I mean, there is no way to be to be safe from that, especially if presidents are popular. I mean, López Obrador is popular, and then he knows that. So yes, Ine is vulnerable. I think INE is going to survive, but if in 2024 another populist person comes to the president and continues attacking INE, and if that president is popular, then INE can suffer and die in the coming years. Luis Carlos Ugalde is the former president of Mexico's Federal Electoral Institute. Luis, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Teaching about race and identity is often tricky, and even more so now, coincidentally, during this Black History Month. Legislation in states across the country is putting a spotlight on how educators present black history in their classrooms, forcing them to navigate political landmines. NPR's Juma Say brings us this report. Roderick Ferguson's love for black literature started with a gift. There is a bookstore called The Shrine of the Black Madonna um, in Atlanta, Georgia. One of my aunts, as a Christmas gift, gave me a set of books from the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Ferguson didn't grow up with his auntie in Atlanta. He grew up in rural Manchester. That's about 70 miles south of the state's capital. But still, 
the shrine of the Black Madonna became a kind of outlet. He found the store's number and, quote, just started ordering books. Now, every book he finished, he'd pass along to friends in the neighborhood who were being trained in activism and organizing by members of the local NAACP, the junior high school principal, the school secretaries, their French teacher, and others. These elders were all veterans of the civil rights movement, and together, the community in Manchester produced what Ferguson calls the classroom outside of the classroom. I credit those moments with the successes that many of us enjoy today. Success like his own. Today, Roderick Ferguson is a professor at Yale, contributing his own scholarship to the Black literary canon. So this is all from a rural town where the Klan was still somewhat active. <laughs> In 2021, the College Board announced that they were creating a high school advanced placement course for African-American studies. And Ferguson was on that reading list, included in the unit on Black queer studies. But when the College Board released the final curriculum on the first day of Black History Month this year, he wasn't there. Neither was the unit. Now, the College Board says that this was an independent decision, not a reaction to criticism from states like Florida that banned the pilot curriculum entirely. The day after the board's announcement, I meet Ed Allison in the front office at Granby High, a public school in Norfolk, Virginia. Front door. We walk up to the classroom where he teaches African-American studies. This is a African-American studies um, scholastic bowl. Next year, Allison's teaching the new AP curriculum. So almost immediately we start talking about the cuts. He says that as a teacher, it's exhausting to see Black history so politicized. It's the same as a parent. He has a daughter in college, and I ask how he felt about her Black history education growing up. He tells me about a conversation she'd had with a friend. It's funny because I remember doing the Black Lives Matter thing with George Floyd and one of her Caucasian friends was like, Em, this is so crazy. And she said, girl, my daddy what made me watch Mississippi Burning when I was eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> Mississippi Burning is a movie based on the 1964 murder of three civil rights workers. Does that summarize it? <laughs> that summarizes it. Allison says, as frustrating as it can sometimes be trying to teach the history of race in America, he's not letting the cuts to AP's curriculum bother him because he is the curriculum and he lives it every day. Juma Say, NPR News. <laughs> You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 1018. And coming up in about 15 minutes, our conversation with two women in Harvard, Massachusetts, whose lives are now intertwined. One is a Ukrainian refugee who arrived in a small town with her family after fleeing the war. The other is her sponsor. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu slash MBA. Join us at City Space Sunday, March 12th, for an afternoon of classical and folk music featuring the Boston-based Rasa String Quartet. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It is 25 degrees in Boston, a chance of snow showers today, also a slight chance of some rain showers later, and highs in the upper 30s. This is WBUR.
I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. A historic winter storm has left some snow and heavy rain in low-lying elevations of Southern California. North of Los Angeles, part of Interstate 5 remained closed in blizzard conditions. More than 30 people have died and more than 40 survived the latest migrant boat shipwreck off the coast of southern Italy. Rescuers are searching for more survivors in rough waters. There are signs that new post-Brexit arrangements between the U.K. and Northern Ireland may be ready for parliamentary consideration. A key legislative session has been slated for Monday. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ada Peralta. Russia's war in Ukraine is now a year old, and there are no signs that the fighting will let up anytime soon. The West continues to strongly support Ukraine, but powerful countries like China have refused to distance themselves from Russia. That tension was on full display this weekend at the G20, a gathering of the world's biggest economies, which ended in disagreement over Ukraine. And Pierre's Joanna Kakissis is in Kyiv and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Ader. So, Joanna, update us on what happened at the G20 and what does it mean for Ukraine? So, you, you know, Russia's war on Ukraine has upended the global economy and disrupted food and energy supply chains, and that's what was discussed at the G20. Uh, some countries, though, won't publicly call Russia the bad guy here, like India, where the G20 was held this weekend. India is the world's biggest democracy. It's enjoying lots of cheap Russian gas. Uh, at the meeting, India refused to criticize Russia, even as Western nations imposed new sanctions on Moscow and revealed more economic support for Ukraine. G20 leaders, as a result, struggled to come up with some sort of united summary of the meeting. Uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen urged her counterparts to condemn Russia, and most of them did. Uh, but notably, China refused to sign off on any parts that referred to Russia's war on Ukraine. How big a deal is that then? So it feels like a big deal because it comes as China welcomes the leader of Belarus, a staunch Russian ally to Beijing this week. And remember, Washington has warned that China is considering sending military aid to Russia. And so here in Ukraine, that feels very troubling. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke to this worry a few times on Friday during a press conference that lasted more than two hours. NPR was there, too. Uh, here's one response to a Ukrainian reporter who raised the issue. Zelensky speaks through an interpreter. I really want to believe that China is not going to supply weapons to Russia. This is very important because, you know, it's better the way things uh, are for China now than in uh, Russia's embrace. Because, you know, there's this risk of the Third World War. Hmm, the risk of a Third World War. 
Did Zelensky suggest how he might reach out to China to keep that risk at bay? Well, Zelensky has already said he wants to meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping because he wants to maintain economic ties during the war. Ukraine is dependent on Chinese imports. And he says China and Ukraine already agree on things like territorial integrity, and that's a starting point for a discussion on human rights. Uh, here's Zelensky responding to a Chinese reporter. People cannot be killed. Civilians cannot be killed. Would you agree with me? A nuclear power plant cannot be occupied. It is dangerous for the entire world. Would China agree with that? Can you, can you see that China agree? You see? We have so many common issues. So, Eder Zelensky is trying to find common ground, not just with China, but with other nations who have not supported Ukraine, nations in Latin America and Africa. And he says he wants to make his case to them in person, too. So what's the latest uh, on the battlefield? So the fighting continues to rage in eastern Ukraine in the region known as Donbass. The fiercest fighting is still around in the town of Bakhmut, which Russian forces have been pummeling for like seven months. Ukraine is just reminding the West that many Ukrainian soldiers are dying in that fight. And they are saying that Western allies need to speed up supply of weapons to avoid any Russian gains. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis reporting from Kyiv. Joanna, thank you. You're welcome, Ader. Shortly after Russian President Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, an editor with a leading Russian news broadcast staged a protest that, at least in Russia, is unthinkable today. She risked prison for it and ended up fleeing. Now she lives in France, and NPR's Eleanor Beardsley sat down with her. Last March, as a Russian anchorwoman read the news, editor Marina Ovsyanikova shouted out from behind her. She had burst onto the set of Russia's Channel One, holding a large white poster board where she had scrawled, Stop the war. Don't believe the propaganda. They're lying to you. She would know. <laughs> Eleven months later, I meet 44-year-old Ovsyanikova in the Paris headquarters of Reporters Without Borders, the organization that helped her get out of Russia. I worked 20 years in Channel One in Moscow. I was the editor of the main news uh, program. Yes, I was the part of this strong Kremlin propaganda machine. For a time after the Soviet collapse, the newscast was more or less independent. She says that changed in 2008 after Russia invaded Georgia and stepped up its propaganda against the West. She switches to Russian and speaks through an interpreter. I must admit that I didn't recognize the coming catastrophe. You know, we saw all these changes happening, but we thought, okay, it's maybe for the less educated part of the population. Maybe it's for members of the government. So we tell them the things they want to hear. Nobody took it seriously, and we kind of hid our heads in the sand. Ovsyanikova says for her, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a point of no return. I really cried. Maybe two days. Two days of torment, knowing she had to act. The divorced mother prepared her sign at home when her two kids were visiting their father. I was 90% sure that I wouldn't be able to do it, that somebody would stop me. And finally, in the last minute, I ran to the studio with my poster. Because I was thinking that maybe if I didn't do it that day, the next day I wouldn't have the energy at all. 
She lost her job but believes she was not immediately jailed because the Kremlin thought a divorced mother with no protest history might generate sympathy. She's sure authorities regret that decision now. She was later put under house arrest for demonstrating near Red Square with a sign bearing the number of children killed in Ukraine. Nine days before her trial, her lawyer told her she would likely get a heavy sentence and had better flee. Christophe Deloire, Secretary General of Reporters Without Borders, says Ovsyanikova's escape is something out of a Hollywood film. When she left, I wouldn't have bet that she would succeed. There were so many risks on the road. She was under house arrest, with some members of her families in front of her house who are Putinists, and they could have betrayed her. She had an electronic bracelet, so there were so many reasons that she would fail. She used seven different cars and cut off her electronic bracelet and threw it out the window. Near the EU border, they got stuck in the mud and she had to walk for hours through forests with no phone coverage, guided only by the stars. A strong sense of humor clearly helped her make it. <laughs> but I didn't leave my luggage. I still brought it with me up to Leon. She fled with her 12-year-old daughter but had to leave her 18-year-old son and a mother who told her she's a criminal behind. Ovsyanikova is disappointed few Russians have protested the war but says the fear and the propaganda work. Many have this stance, like things are not that straightforward. This is the, the common expression and this works very well. Because it allows the propaganda to sell some conspiracy theories about some evil forces that have been working for centuries to destroy Russia. While she's lost a lot, her home, part of her family, Ovsyanikova says she still has much to live for. She says this war can only end with Ukraine's victory and the fall of Putin. She will soon publish a book about the inner workings of his propaganda machine and says she will never shut up. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. A defiant spirit is very much alive in Ukraine as well, including on the postage there. The Ukrainian Postal Service has issued a stamp featuring the work of the quintessential underground street artist Banksy. At least seven of the British artist's pieces have popped up on walls across Ukraine. But one, drawn on a demolished wall in the town of Borodanka, northwest of Kyiv, stood out to locals. On it, a young boy is upending a grown man. Both are in judo attire. The man about to hit the ground with his legs in the air could be interpreted as Russian president and judo fan Vladimir Putin. And so, to mark one year since Putin's invasion, Ukrainians are hoping to immortalize it on envelopes, sending a message of defiance across the world. Mass shootings targeting LGBTQ spaces and a rise in anti-trans rhetoric have inspired some queer people to take up arms. New Hampshire's public radio Todd Bookman joined a monthly gathering of a gun group that sees firearms as key to their own self-defense. And as you might imagine, this story does include the sound of gunfire. On a recent Sunday morning, the parking lot of Patakaway State Park in southeastern New Hampshire is filling up with hikers. There's also a different crew packing up warm clothes and weapons. Thank you all for coming to uh, Rainbow Reload. Today's organizer is Finn Smith. Like everybody else in this story, they've requested some level of anonymity because they fear for their safety. I recognize the temperature is 
freezing and this is not the most comfortable, but if it's raining, we're training. If it's snowing, we're going. Groups like Rainbow Reload exist around the country, often called pink pistol clubs. It's a place for experts and the gun curious to practice and improve their shooting. But this goes beyond hobby. There's a practical goal here, to prepare and protect themselves. If the world is dangerous, then you have to be dangerous back. And that very much has pushed me into um, where I am now. After giving a safety talk, Smith and a half dozen others start hiking down a snow-covered trail. With long guns strapped over their shoulders, you can imagine the looks they get from dog walkers. One of the members, Sharon, recently transitioned. And I went from concealed carry every once in a while when I was sort of feeling it to every single day because reading the news, having a few experiences, realizing that I've gone from old cis male, white, upper middle class, really no no real fears about anything to there are people that just looking at me will want to hurt me. There's that individual fear, fear of what may happen simply existing in public. But for some, there's also a more organized and ominous threat, including a neo-Nazi group now active in New England that's targeted trans people. This is Jamie, who's carrying a new pistol she's hoping to break in today. There's been an uptick in hate crimes. There's been an uptick in groups that have been protesting drag story times and drag shows, and it felt like I needed to learn how to protect myself. There are local rod and gun clubs where she could shoot, but with her leftist political leanings and being a trans woman, she thinks she wouldn't be welcomed. And having to hide your identity when you're shooting with a group of people isn't really a great time. After hiking in for about a mile, the group veers off trail, deep into the woods, until they spot a clearing. Start setting up right here. While Smith marks off a lane for shooting, others collect down branches and start a fire. Then the range goes hot and people take turns on the line. The experienced work with the less experienced. Everybody shares guns, they geek out on scopes. There's not a ton of data on LGBTQ gun ownership, but a UCLA study from 2020 found that about 21% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people live in a house with a firearm. That's compared to 36% of heterosexual adults. In terms of partisan breakdown, a recent Pew study found that about one in five self-identified Democrats own a gun, compared to nearly half of Republicans. Rainbow Reload is not a political group. It doesn't advocate for any gun policies, and amongst the members, there are a variety of opinions. Do you consider yourself on the political left? Uh, I mean, if you go far enough left, you get your guns back. If there's a stereotype that everyone who isn't a conservative opposes gun rights, Guardian is here to scramble that. Obviously a fake name, Guardian says he's fearful of his family being targeted. His hat, worn backwards, says, make fascists afraid again. He's been around guns his whole life and sees them as a way to protect queer people and queer spaces. And I want people to feel safe to be who they are. It's not a, a matter of politics. It's a matter of whether or not you think certain people should get to live and be their genuine selves. After a few hours, people walk around picking up the spent shell casings out of the snow. Does anybody have anything else that they wanted to practice that they didn't do uh, today? Folks hang around the fire and then start the hike out. The guns over their shoulders, a source of security in a world that feels full of threats. For NPR News, I'm Todd Bookman.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is Weekend Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. One year ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. Millions of Ukrainians fled the country. Ira Ostapenko was one of them. My husband, he woke me up at night um, on 25th of February, and he said, there is no way you're staying here. You have to leave. You have to save our kid. You have to take our daughter and run. Ira drove her two-year-old daughter and the family's cats, first to Bulgaria, then Germany, where they spent the next eight months. After a while, her husband was allowed to leave Ukraine and join them. Throughout this time, Ira remained in touch with some folks in Harvard, Massachusetts. Years ago, she had worked for Rochelle Greyer and her family in Harvard as an au pair. Eventually, Greyer was able to sponsor Ira's family and bring them to the U.S. Greyer turned to a group called Welcome NST for help. Obviously, we'd never done anything like that before. We had no idea what we were really getting into. They gave us a mentor, walked me through the process of creating what they call a neighborhood team. Um, And so it started out recruiting some of my closest friends, who also happened to be people who knew Ira from way back when. We ultimately recruited, I don't know, there was probably 30 or 40 people ultimately involved in helping relocate them. Today, Ira, her husband, their now three-year-old, and their cats are living in an apartment in Harvard. Her husband has a job, and for now, Ira is staying home with their daughter. For me, it was like coming home. I felt like I'm back to family, and this helps to get through these dark times. So they saved our lives. You say it was like coming back to family, and yet also you do still have family in Ukraine? My mom in Germany, my sister in Czech Republic, my cousin in Poland, just my parents-in-law are still in Ukraine. We are all spread all around the world. With the war hitting the one-year mark, how are you thinking about the circumstances? Circumstances right now, we lost everything. We lost our life. We have to start everything from the zero, but we are lucky that we are alive because we are, we are losing our friends, relatives. Like every day, every day someone is dying in Ukraine. We are all connected. You know, we are just like one human body, the whole Ukrainians. We support each other. We... We love each other. We are supporting our troops. We are supporting our refugees. But it's so sad that we are, at the same time, like many Ukrainians are dying. Kids, young men, young women, seniors. It's just a huge impact on us. We will never forgive Russia. We were so connected to Russia. We have so many relatives, friends uh, over there, but now we cut all relations with Russia and we will never forgive them. Rochelle, what's one thing you really want people to understand about ways of helping people leaving Ukraine? You know, the one thing that happened through the course of organizing the effort to help Erin Vlad is that People were just thankful to be um, able to help and to be given uh, an opportunity that they could um, 
they could latch onto and that they could, you know, actually, you know, do something. So we had a welcome NST provided us with a mentor. Her name was Carolina and she was amazing. And I remember she said to me, you know, something to the effect of, you know, you, you kind of just have to start taking the step and the road will rise to meet you, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's absolutely been true. I, I was scared. I was nervous, but um, without question, you know, the road did rise to meet us and, um, you know, people pitched in and we, we raised a, a healthy amount of money that has helped them with rent and getting work visas and covering the high cost of, you know, electrical heat this winter and all kinds of things. Ira, one year past the start of the war, what are your hopes? I hope for peace. I hope that this war will end up and we will have a peaceful life because even here, even staying here in safety, um, my heart cries every day, you know, for all Ukrainians. When my grandparents who survived uh, during the Second World War, they were saying like every day, the most important, so problems are not problems, the war, that's the worst thing in the world. I didn't understand that, but now I, I do know that the war is just the worst thing. I hope for peace. Do you and your family hope to return to Ukraine? I hope to return to Ukraine every day since I left already for a year. So first we thought it won't take long. It will take like a couple of weeks and then the whole world will step in and Ukraine will, will be independent again. But it's already a year and it's still going on. So I, I really don't know. Ira Astapinko and Rochelle Greyer, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ada Peralta, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Schwartz. He's the puzzle editor of the New York Times and Weekend Edition's Puzzle Master. Hey there, Will. Good morning, Ada. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Elaine Ellenson of San Francisco. I said, name a tree. In the very middle of the word, insert a homophone of another tree, and the result will be a new word describing what everyone wants to be. What is it? Well, the tree is a poplar. Insert the U, Y-E-U tree in the middle, and you get popular. Everyone wants to be popular. <laughs> so now this puzzle was pretty popular. <laughs> with over 1,100 correct submissions. Am I the only one who laughed at that? Come on. Uh, our, our puzzle winner this week is Chris Garcia of Springfield, Missouri. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you. So Chris, uh, how long have you been playing the puzzle? Well, a long time. I haven't been submitting for that long, but I've been listening for years. <laughs> 
Nice. So are you ready to play the puzzle? I hope so. <laughs> All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Chris, I'm going to read you some sentences. Each sentence contains the name of a fruit hidden in consecutive letters. For example, if I said, wash with soap, please, you would say apple because the letters A-P-P-L-E are hidden consecutively inside soap, please. Here we go. Number one, I hope a check arrives tomorrow. Peach. Excellent. And let you know every fruit has five or more letters. Number two is get it on sale Monday. A melon. Lemon. Lemon is right. Mars is a Roman god. Um. They're in season right now in Mexico City. And it's hidden inside Roman god. Mango. Mango is it. Halos are headwear for angels. Mm, let's see. Uh, and look in those last two words for angels. I was going to say um, oranges. Oranges, correct. The producer is making rap easy. Well, rap. R-A-P? Oh, R-A-P. Yeah, like the music producer. Okay. Um. The key to solving uh, puzzles like this is to look at the most awkward part of the sentence, and here you would look at making rap easy. Um. Making rap, um, okay. Grape. Grape is it. If it's organic, her rye bread is fine. Uh, hmm. That whole sentence is kind of awkward. <laughs> uh, cherry. Cherry, you got it. With helpers, I'm monitoring the situation. Um. And here's your hint. The uh, fruit's name starts somewhere inside the word helpers. With helpers, I'm monitoring the situation. Persimmon. Persimmon. You got it. You can heap ricotta in lasagna. Uh, let's see. And look inside heap ricotta. Apricot. Apricot. You got it. That was so dumb an analogy. Oh, I thought you were talking the last clue. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's not a comment. That's a sentence for. <laughs> uh, Tangelo. No. Uh, 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 no. That was so dumb an analogy. Banana. Banana is it? A Nicaragua vacation would be nice now. Guava. Guava is it. I went to Liverpool to see the Beatles. Oh, man. Uh, olive. Olive is it. And here's your last one. The writer put anger in every line. 
uh, tangerine. Tangerine. Nice job. That was amazing, Chris. Um, that was a hard one. How do you feel? That was hard. <laughs> it's always harder when you do it in person than when you're home drinking a cup of coffee on your sofa. You're not the first person to say that. <laughs> I hear that every week. <laughs> <laughs> For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin, as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org puzzle. And Chris, uh, what member station do you listen to? I'm a sustaining member at KSMU here in Springfield. That's Chris Garcia of Springfield, Missouri. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you so much. It was fun. All right. Well, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Jim Francis of Kirkland, Washington. Take this equation, 14 plus 116 plus 68 equals 47. Clearly, this doesn't work mathematically, but it does work in a non-mathematical way. So please explain. Here's the equation again. 14 plus 116 plus 68 equals 47. Explain how this equation works in a non-mathematical way. When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for the entries this week is Thursday, March 2nd at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of The New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Will, thank you. Thanks a lot. Tomorrow on Morning Edition. Imagine you're transported into one of the Mario games. That's what Hollywood's new Super Nintendo World is like. There you go, all right. And that's your first key on easy mode, believe it or not. Morning Edition's A. Martinez previewed the theme park and talked with Mario's creator about the game's appeal to kids and adults over the years. I think that it's important to make a game such that it's really simple to start and enter, but then for people who are really looking for depth, we provide that depth. Listen tomorrow morning on this member station's website or at npr.org. One summer, when Dan Santat was 13, he left his sleepy California town and went on a class trip to Europe. It ended up being exactly what his awkward, anxious teenage self needed. Dan and his classmates spent weeks trekking through five countries. They experienced new places, people, languages, food, and even a little romance. Now, several decades later, he's detailed that adventure in a new graphic memoir called A First Time for Everything. Dan Santat joins us now to talk about it. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So Dan, um, what were you like before this trip? I mean, what, what kind of eighth grader were you? Um, you know, I would say I was pretty outgoing. I was a pretty friendly kid. I always liked strumming up conversations with other kids and, and being friendly. And then somewhere around middle school, it just felt like kids had an edge to them. It almost felt as if my childhood was kind of being forcefully taken because there was this idea of being a man and saying, grow up, you got to toughen up, you got to be a certain way. I think I adapted to it pretty well, but it, it of course, came with its hiccups. Hmm. So this trip changes things for you. Um, of the many experiences that you had, 
what was your favorite and why? One of my personal favorites is the time I snuck into Wimbledon. Hmm. You have to understand, in the 1980s, kids were just set free to do whatever they wanted. The tour group would just say, okay, kids, go have fun in Paris. Go have fun in Switzerland. Go have fun in London. That was just, it was just normal back in the day. And I wanted to go to Wimbledon. I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. The tournament's going on. And so I, I hopped on to the London Underground with a friend. And I remember getting to Wimbledon and just standing in front of this cute neighborhood thinking, where's the tennis? I was a little panicked. I said, this isn't, I thought it was just going to drop me in front of, of the tennis match. And so I'm just wandering the streets for like an hour and it's raining intermittently on and off. And then I finally find Wimbledon. And then when I get to the gates, you know, there's an official that says, oh, we'll be letting people in for three pounds after 5 p.m. And that was like 15 minutes away. I paid my three pounds, walked on the grounds. And again, like I said, it was raining. So I thought, well, maybe I can go see center court. And I sat down hmm. and then slowly they're removing the rain tarp. The sideline officials are coming out. They're squeegeeing off the grass. The chair umpire comes out. And then John McEnroe and Stefan Edberg come out to finish the third set of the 1989 men's semifinal. And I got to watch it for three pounds. And it was probably the most Forrest Gump kind of experience anybody <laughs> could ever have. And I, I treasure that fully. Um, there were also other experiences. So I'm guessing um, closing your eyes, kissing Amy, the girl you had a crush on, and kissing her accidentally in the ear was not one of your favorite experiences. Yeah, so, so I took some liberties with the experience in the book. I drop a piece of bread into the fondue pot and I guess the tradition was that you were supposed to kiss the person next to you when you do that. Amy was sitting next to me and I'm getting heckled by these really popular girls from my school who are like, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> and in this particular case, Amy agrees. She says, okay, just to get the girls off your back, you can kiss me on the cheek. I close my eyes and I pucker up and I end up kissing her on the ear, which is, you know, the most awkward <laughs> first kiss ever. Now, truthfully, what actually happened in real life was I was on a bus to Salzburg and she was sitting next to me. And at this point we had already expressed our feelings for one another. And of course those same girls were, you know, sitting right behind me and they're whispering into my ear, just, oh, just, just give her a peck on the cheek, ask if you can kiss her, just, you know, whisper to her. And I remember leaning over to Amy and saying, can, can, I, can I kiss you? She was really sheepishly like grinning and just nodding like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And then we go into a tunnel and it's dark for like 10, 15 seconds. I'm just navigating in the dark, you know, just with my <laughs> lips, just trying to find something. And then when the bus comes out of the tunnel, I see her with her eyes fully dilated and her hand against her ear looking at me. And of course, the girls in the back, they just shout out, did you just kiss her on the ear? <laughs> and then there's just a rupture of laughter that just fills the entire bus. And I was mortified. And I didn't try kissing Amy again for like another <laughs> like two weeks. I was so embarrassed. So Dan, you primarily write for a children and a young adult audience. Um, do you think there are significant differences between what you experienced back when you were in middle school uh, the situations, emotions, uh, and pressures that we see play out in this memoir, and what 
middle schoolers are going through today, what your kids are going through today? What you tend to see is that adolescence is a cycle. You know, you go through these rigors of being a teenager. And then as your kids are growing up, you actually see them going through those same pressures, right? It's just the only difference is that the clothes are different and, you know, music has changed. But for the most part, it's just a revolving circle of repeating events. Um, I think sometimes as adults, we kind of do a disservice by by assuring them that parents are flawless and that we can take care of anything. And now, you know, with my boys, after telling them all the events of this memoir, we're actually much, much tighter than, than ever. And, and they're more open to telling me all kinds of things, hmm. mainly because I've shown them that I've been fallible, that I've made mistakes that they've made. And as a result, I think they feel, you know, there's this saying where they say, well, well, I'm not supposed to be your friend, I'm your parent, you know, and I think there is a way to be both. This level of freedom uh, that you describe in this memoir allows you to learn so much about yourself. Um, but at the end of the book, uh, you add a note saying that that maybe kids shouldn't have this kind of freedom. I don't know, you know, drinking beer at 13 or stealing bikes. Um, but you turned <laughs> out okay, right? Right, right. I mean, you know, I think any Gen Xer that grew up knows that you went to a birthday party and then in the middle of the night you snuck down to the TV to watch HBO, you know, something maybe you shouldn't have watched like, you know, Halloween 4 or, you know, or, or, or something, right? <laughs> you don't want to talk about those things. But we did some pretty shady things. But there is something to be gained from living life to its fullest. Hmm. And I think that's something that's important for all kids to have and experience. Wow. So last question, the most important one. You drank a lot of Fanta oh, on yeah. this trip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you still drink a lot of Fanta? And do you have a favorite flavor? I was actually recently in Singapore and they had this uh, lychee Fanta, which I was really enamored by. So <laughs> I, I can safely say that I think I've had every flavor of Fanta. But as someone who's very nostalgic and, and just loves the classics, <laughs> I, I always go back to my, my favorite, which is orange, which was my first. And you never forget your first. <laughs> Dan Santant, author of the new graphic memoir, A First Time for Everything. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe is back next week. I'm Ader Peralta. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Mississippi River, where passengers can experience Southern culture and visit Civil War battlefields. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com slash NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at WaltonFamilyFoundation.org. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. And keep in mind, throughout the day, you can follow the news with WBUR. Just tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. It's 25 degrees in Boston, a chance of snow showers and a slight chance of rain showers today. Highs in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hamlin Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into morning edition, wait, wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.